Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene Rapkin, and I am here with uh, one of my favorite people, Ira Throop, who is so hard to categorize. You know, he's product designer, fashion designer, designer with capital D, and just really one of the most fascinating people I've ever talk to about fashion, about clothes, about the world, just an incredible design brain. And uh, thank you, Eider, for agreeing to come up on the podcast. Of course, man. Absolute pleasure, as always. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who don't know, and I feel like most of you will know, um, Eider through, uh, when he came on the scene, like early 2010s you know early last decade in london it was like a revolution in terms of how concepts can drive fashion and at that time and even more so now at that time we had a real dearth of creative talent that was driven by concept we had really not that much in terms of conceptual fashion, you know, sort of Margiela was gone. Hussein Shalayan was kind of like no longer on the radar the way he was, let's say the beginning of the century. Um, Helmut Lang was gone. So it was this real dearth. And then like either you come on the scene and it was like a revolution in mm-hmm. terms of conceptual fashion and what i found interesting how you were how you were accepted in the sort of designer fashion camp and then you were accepted in this kind of product design camp with like people who are more about you know clothing rather than fashion about the engineering of clothing about product design so i would like for you to start off just like you know walking us back through like how you got started i you know uh, i know we did this awesome article on you way back when that we're going to put up on the internet finally um that we did for a print edition but if you can walk the audience through like how did you decide to get into clothing design, like your school days and then like your collections, your first like new object research and sort of really your journey uh, as a designer? Yeah, man. So you want, you want me to go back to the start? Um, well, thank you yeah, for your kind yeah, words. It doesn't have to, yeah, sure. Right. Um, yeah, th- thanks for everything you said, man. I'm very kind. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and keep it as uh, sw- swift as possible in, in in some ways because I've been told that um, I can waffle on a little bit. <laughs> but uh, for the you know good. for the benefit of 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 the listeners, um, yeah, I I you know the, the the great thing about me ending up in this in this line of work and particularly, you know, the clothing side, because I would say 
I would say at the core, I'm an artist. You know, I'm, I suppose like people have always said that, um, mm-hmm. you know, in articles and whatnot. And I've certainly always called myself an artist, but it's, it is over the past few years, five years or so since I kind of went missing again that um, that I've really reflected on that and I've actually realized that my practice really is that of an artist and my complications are to try and make that work, you know, in the context of fashion design, product design, clothing design, however you want to categorize it. Um, And I suppose in many ways, I've always been an artist, you know, since being a kid, you know, I've always, I've always drawn, I've always, I've always, you know, drawing was my first thing, you know, ever since before I could even speak, you know, it's, I've always had a pencil in my hand and, and, you know, I'm from that fascination. I, which continues to this day. Um, I developed a, a passion for comic books and, you know, studying and analyzing the human body in motion in particular, you know, that was my real anatomical education really from comic books. And then from toys, you know, animating, you know, figures and analyzing them from multiple angles as they're flying through the air as as archaic as that sounds you know it was a real continuous education for me you know for a lot of years and it still is you know to to a degree and i'm still fascinated by comic boy uh, comic books and toys and um you know i still analyze action figures you know it's still my still my education in many ways Mm -hmm. and um I guess something happened in my in my early teens, which was that I became really interested in in clothing via these brands, right? CP Company, Stone Island, anything that came from Massimosti. It was kind of like the uniform of, I guess, the football hooligans that used to go on the football, um, you know, in, in, in mm-hmm. my adopted town of Burnley in Lancashire after having grown up in Argentina and then um, in Spain, you know, we lived in Madrid for five years. I was always into football, but it was never accessible. And all of a sudden when we, when we arrived in, in Burnley, um, it was like all of a sudden this, the inaccessibility of football became really subverted. And all of a sudden I was going on the football and I was, immersed in that world and surrounded by, um, you know, these crazy characters in this crazy uniform, which was really avant-garde, you know, jackets with goggles in the hood and color changing mm-hmm. outerwear and um, metal jackets and really crazy forward-thinking stuff. And um, <clears throat> it really left an impression on me. And, you know, I just saw it as, it's kind of like comic book characters coming to life. It was like my imagination right. was, had it, had a real counterpart, you know, it was like in, in real life. I mean, I was used to drawing these kind of characters and reading about them and watching movies, whatever. But, um, it was like, it was real life and, uh, it, you know, I just left a, left a real big impression on me and I became a massive fan of these brands and I ended up working in the local shop that sold these brands and, um, and around the time 
I guess it was around 2000 when I was working in one of those stores in Burnley. Um, it was one Moreno Ferrari who was, who was the creative director of CP company at the time. He did the transformables collection along with, I mean, one season after another, he also did, uh, well, then, then, then he had the urban protection range, which was like, and, and every season he would drop a new piece, you know, and it was like this collectible concept of, um, just black jackets with crazy, um, level of functionality and, and detail. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was just so progressive, man, like so conceptual and yeah. really Can we wearable. just go off on attention and, yeah. and like there is either because people get so hung up like in my world on like designer fashion i mean as 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 do i and but there is like more design in brands like cp company and stone island than in most designer fashion like in terms of actual oh, yeah. design it's incredible how forward thinking those brands have been uh and that's i think like that's what people don't understand yeah i think i think people maybe yeah don't understand it or maybe don't appreciate it or maybe the the value system of design has shifted um Hmm. but i think i don't know i think that if you if you show good design has integrity and that has been really designed you know from the inside out whether somebody is normally into that or not it's like good art you can't avoid but appreciate it you know perhaps it's that it's there's not enough of it around anymore or perhaps um the people who do do it aren't interested in that type of audience i don't know um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's very true. Um, cause you know, like for me, it was like a real accident. All of a sudden my, my core has never changed, you know, even though people think, Oh, I'm a designer or whatever. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just a kid who's interested in toys and comic books. Like that's not, that that's never <laughs> going to change. You know, the design yeah. of it is like incidental. It's like, I'm just trying to capture the same feeling that I had as a kid um, with, you know, I mean, I'll tell you what, like there's a constant, which is like comic books and toys and, you know, the level of kind of like stimulation and like learning and satisfaction you get from those kind of interactions you know that you you take from that expand your imagination expand your mind and you know and that that's how that that's how that happened you know that was my input you know those Mm -hmm. sources that triggered my imagination but there were um there were three moments in my life in you know you know in 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 the context of talking chronologically there were three moments in, in my life that really um it kind of inspired me and, and really stayed with me more than more than my practice 
of playing with toys and reading comic books did. And, and, and it's these moments that are the, really the pivotal, crucial moments that, that is what I've devoted my life to, um, trying to capture, mm-hmm. really. Um, you know, you hear, you hear stories about some of the best chefs in the world really being deeply inspired by a specific moment when they first tasted their, you know, grandmother's pasta or whatever, right? And it's that deep, deep right. spiritual, like, mm, like trigger or inspirate moment of inspiration that you capture and you try to recreate, right? So it's like you've this the mm-hmm. spirit has been handed a your your spirit has been communicated to. And now you're trying, you devote your life to do the same to others so that you can try and trigger that same moment. You know, this is what my work is about. This is what my life is devoted to. And and I can tell you specifically the three moments. So what were those moments? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the first moment I was, um, I was around six years old, I guess. And I think it was summer camp or something like some sort of like summer activity. I was in Argentina. I was in Buenos Aires where I grew up until the age of seven. So it was towards the end of that period. And, um, and I, you, you may have heard about this cause I've definitely identified these moments before and I've definitely spoken about them before, but it's definitely relevant now to, sh- to share with you. Um, and yeah. And I, I remember vividly, we were in the canteen of whatever place it was. And this kid came in, he must've been around my age wearing a goofy hat, right? So he's obviously just been to Disney mm-hmm. World or whatever. And he's got this goofy hat. And I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it deeply inspired me so much that to this day, I feel that inspiration. You know, it's like the moment I felt when I saw this hat, this hybrid object that perfectly combined this character that I knew and loved and I had this affinity towards. I felt like I have a relationship with Goofy, you know, it's like I know Goofy, like I've grown up with Goofy. Incidentally, mm-hmm. my favorite, you know, Disney character. I just love how he's designed, you know, like the balance of his legs and his head and his face and his features is a really well-designed character. And this genius like idea had merged his, his distinguishing features, facial features, etc., his ears, his eyes with a baseball cap. Right. So you have these two things right. merging into one, you know, this metamorphosis happening that feels so mm-hmm. um, seamless, you know, there's such a synergy between, right. between these two, iconographies i can recognize equally the baseball cap as uh, as much as i can recognize goofy's face and head um and that became to me like the most aspirational object in the world you know like i needed that goofy hat mm-hmm. and it took you know probably like i don't know 20 years or something for me to get that goofy hat incidentally but um <laughs> in many degrees my work 
aspires to recapture that same energy, the same moment, but at the highest level of product design and conceptual thinking. And then the second moment was when I watched the Batman movie, Tim Burton's original Batman movie. And, you know, the Batcave mm-hmm. opens and the Batman suit is there and Michael Keaton is looking at the empty Batman mask, you know, and you see the Batman mask for the first time and it's got Michael Keaton's uh, facial features captured within it, but, you know, exaggerated, distilled and exaggerated, like abstracted to these like pointy eyebrows. And it would, mm-hmm. you know, I was just like, I was nine at the time. I was in Madrid in the cinema. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just exactly the same feeling. Again, these two things, right? You've got Michael Keaton and you've got the Batman mask and they've come together into this object that crucially the object holds the spirit, the value of its narrative, whether it's the goofy hat or the bat, the empty hollow Batman mask, mm-hmm. the object is so charged. It doesn't need Michael Keaton inside of it. And the, the cap didn't right. need the kid inside of it. You know, it's the object has mm-hmm. all the energy. You see what I mean? So it's object obsession yeah, yeah. is, is this really, that's my, that is the foundations of why I've become an artist and a designer. And then the third moment was in England, uh, my first football match when I first saw the CP company Mila Milia uh, goggle jacket with the goggles in the hood. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, I mean, it's just another another instance of the same thing, right? It's like another object, another wearable object that has an anatomy of its right. own, that has facial features, that has a soul of its own, that tells a story. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what triggered this ongoing fascination with characters, with objects that, that capture characters, um, that transitioned that fantasy world into reality, you know, and kind of planted a seed that wasn't immediate in my mind at the time, but it planted a seed that made it possible for me to bring my fantasy world, my dreams, my imagination into this world that, that we all live in. You know, I found the portal mm-hmm. somehow right. and Massimo Osti opened that portal that yeah. then Moreno Ferrari continued with his conceptual work at CP Company and then Paul Harvey continued with his work at Stone Island at the time, who is now incidentally the creative director at CP Company and doing an amazing job there actually. Um, after having mm-hmm. had his own brand, 10C, which was also a really beautiful product, um, so they were really, that yeah. was my education, you know, that was my education, like my aspiration. And through that, I started my, 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 uh, characters, my comic book characters started becoming more and more detailed in terms of what they were, what they were wearing. And, you know, just mm-hmm. incidentally, there were garments on my, in my sketchbooks. Um, and, um, right. you know, and all of a sudden I was, I was in fashion school, which was so alien to me. And I was like, what? I don't, I didn't know anything about fashion. (laughs) So yeah, man, that's how it started. Yeah. But what I'm hearing is that there are two, two things is that 
the semiotic value of object was incredibly important to you. You know, what do the objects mean? Mm. And also the fact that objects can stand on their own, you know, without, as a representation of something, they can stand on their own conceptually and visually, and though they don't need human actors yeah to you know to to give them that extra something that they can embody something worth thinking about exactly yeah 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 you don't need to i think that's where that's where fashion becomes really powerful where you know the 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 power of fashion is the effect it has on human psychology right how how a an object can make you feel when you inhabit it, you know, at the end of the day. Um, so I suppose my work has always tried to, um, exaggerate that moment where you, where you extract the object from its context and isolate it. Um, mm-hmm. as the pivotal transitional moment that allows you to aspire towards inhabiting it, you know, rather than the aspiration being. Yeah. And as an object worth studying. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. An object worth studying, I would say first and foremost, I always thought that was more like a personal geeky thing that that was my interest. But, but if anyone mm-hmm. else is interested in studying the object, that's awesome. Like that's my kind of people. But at the very least, if you're not interested in objects and you're interested in fashion, I'm providing a kind of um, a showcase system of forcing you to admire the objects in order for you to aspire to wear it. You know what I mean? Rather than aspire... A bunch of models wearing it because they look beautiful or cool or whatever. Oh yeah, you know I'm trying to I'm trying to like oh absolutely force and it's so the, the focus towards the object. Yeah, and it's so important. I mean, I would argue it is the thing that's always been the thing, but it's so urgent now. Now that we're drowning in the world of logo T-shirts and just merch that passes for fashion <clears throat> that to a point where these objects don't mean anything they're just the same thing with interchanging logos on it or whatnot i feel it's so it's even more urgent now and i think urgent is the right word here to to do fashion like that to say no fashion is worth consideration and worth studying and worth being fascinated with by the virtue of it being design i feel like we forgot the word design you know it used to be fashion design (laughs) and and kind of like the word design fell by the wayside (laughs) and what you do and that's why i've always been fascinated with your work what you do is design first and foremost you know like i said it's design with capital d what Mm. and what what i mean by design deeds what you do is so thought through it's so imbued with thought that as an audience right 
I want to know more. Like I look at the pants you've made, I looked at the jackets you've made, and I'm and I'm like, I want to know more. Like, and when I looked at a Dior logo T-shirt, I don't want to know more. <laughs> there is nothing to know. You know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, no, for sure. But I think you know we're probably the the odd ones out though. Fashion, fashion is fashion is. You know, fashion is what it is. You know, fashion, the, the term fashion is is purely about time. You know, the yeah. the notion of, you know, what it actually means. Um, even fashion design, if you add that word in, you're just designing mm-hmm. things that are very well. Um, if you design good fashion, you're very good at reading the time. Because it's of the time, yeah. right? It's that, that's that's that, that's the meaning, true meaning of fashion. And um, I, I've always found it difficult to call myself a fashion designer. And you know, there's a few reasons for that. One, one is that actually it's not what I've done. I haven't designed with time in mind. I, if anything, mm-hmm. I've designed with timelessness in mind. Um, right. That has been one of my primary objectives in bringing my basically manifesting my ideas my real goal hasn't been to you know to be the hottest brand of the moment or the hottest like product or to hit the trend or it's actually been to 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 create a timeless product that we could talk about in 10 years in 20 years in 100 years and that will be in museums in 500 years like i you know that that is what i aspire towards um, <clears throat> but you know, the other, one of the other reasons why I haven't called myself a fashion designer, um, and there's an interesting caveat to this because incidentally, more and more I've realized that I would love, and I have almost acquired the ability to design as a fashion designer more on that later. <clears throat> but, um, mm-hmm. But I haven't been able to up until now. The reason for that is because I've always considered in a generalized way fashion design to be not only with a focus of time, but also where the process really, the creative process really starts with the end result, right? So a fashion designer will typically imagine the end product, the end silhouette, the end thing at the beginning part right. of the design process. Um, and then, you know, so the design process is the, the beginning part of the creative process. And then the manifestation of it, the development and the production of that idea is secondary um, to the imagination of what that end product is, Right. So it starts with the mm-hmm. imagining of the end product. Whereas my work has always been exactly the opposite. Like I start with an idea, a concept, a narrative, right. creates a set of problems, I start solving them. Everything is conceptually justified and it's the, pro, the very laborious process of solving these problems that creates a kind of incidental aesthetic, you know, the, the aesthetic mm-hmm. and the result is just 
incidental to to me being in service to the concept and therefore being in service to the process. You know, so whatever it ends up with at the end, like is like what I always called justified design philosophy in my manifesto, is as I say, incidental <clears throat> incidental to the to the conceptual process. And so that by by definition, you know, that I think that just doesn't make me a fashion designer. You know, it's right. I think I think a fashion designer is like and I, I, what you know, I want to clarify that I, to me, fashion design isn't a dirty word. And actually, sure, I want to be able to add that string to my bow. Like I would love mm-hmm. to also be able to do fashion. And <laughs> I've been working very hard on acquiring the tools to be able to one day do that. But I have never been mm-hmm. able to be a fashion designer. I've never been able to go, okay, I want to design a hoodie. And I want to make that hoodie really relevant or really cool or really now or really, you know, and evolve that hoodie with time as fashion evolves or a pair of jeans or whatever. My, my products have always been very insular and dictated by this kind of like hermetically sealed um, conceptual framework and aesthetic system. You know, right. I, I haven't been able to be reactive to time or to Mm -hmm. trend Mm -hmm. or to relevance in the world or whatever but it interests me i think it would be amazing for me to be able to do that to be able to do that though what i would need because it's like being a chef right if you want to be a really great chef in the industry of fashion you've got to be able to move with the time because you're playing a time game if we're talking about true fashion you've got to be able to evolve in a relevant way, properly in an agile way. And in order to be a good chef, you got to have one eye on the outside to see what, what else, what else is going on, but also to have really good ingredients, you know, to be able to evolve your Mm -hmm. dishes as you go. Um, I never felt like I could be that kind of chef, that kind of chef, because to be that kind of chef, I would need exclusively my own ingredients that I even invented my own ingredients so that I can evolve them and play with them and put features here and features there so that there are so many features, recognizable features and details and ideas and blocks and shapes and constructions that even if I want to make it like, I don't know, a t-shirt, a hoodie, a a random garment, I can, is intrinsically mine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I talked about in, in 2016 when I had transitioned away from new object research 2013, three years prior, that was the real mm, kind of transitional moment in itself. It was my first collection actually designing garments for their own sake, for the sake of being garments. Um, but I realized that it, you know, it still wasn't it. Like the ingredients still weren't right. And, um, you know, it was a really, kind of frustrating time for me. And incidentally, I realized that my work to anyone who's interested in it, you know, is probably very frustrating. And I've certainly been told that. Um, and, you know, particularly around that show, which I found very difficult. It was, it was a show that I had to do, the one with the life-size puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you yeah, know, and I, I remember actually Tim Blank's doing a you know feature he did for business of fashion and it was kind of like heartbreaking you know like reading 
reading this journalist who I respect, who'd been following my work, kind of just like losing their patience with me. <laughs> and yeah, I, I remember that. I remember <laughs> that piece very well. And, and I remember that, yeah, that feeling came across. It's like, all right, when are you going to start making clothes that we can buy and I know. be in the retail system, etc.? And, and I, I, I understand that. it. I understand it, man. Like, listen, I, I've struggled the same, but like, I also have that frustration, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I, I want my, I want my stuff in the stores. You know, I like what <laughs> I, I like what I design. Like, I want to wear it. And yeah, I, me too. I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm frustrated by myself too, but it's a weird thing. Like, I can't, not do this properly you know yeah and i'm committed to it and of course as you uh, should be and it's hard it's so hard but um i see my path and i'm just following it and i'm blessed that i my path is clear but i am in service to the path that has been put in front of me and on paper, it makes no sense. And to a conventional audience, it must be the most frustrating thing ever. Yeah. But well, I'm yeah, I'm ahead. committed. But I, thank you. But I'm committed to creating the most sublime, fantastical products that, at the same time, the most wearable and aspirational products that that have ever existed you know and i am i am aiming for the top spot you know and i'm i'm the i'm the harshest critic and i am i'm working day and night man like and um the the difficulty over the past few years has been how our strategy has had to shift in terms of our plans to release. And, you know, there's a whole other conversation there we can get into later, um, if you like. But um, as it happened, you know, what was intended to be the, in many ways, like an entry-level project of the highest level of conceptual thinking at streetwear level, you know, which is the DSA, which is based on my daily sketches, um, Mm -hmm. which is incidentally like a real um, learning exercise for me. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to develop a concept that was completely out of my comfort zone. And there was actually basic garments with printed graphics, but that at the same time became the most conceptually informed and designed streetwear brand. You know, it's like I I want to put my brain and my conceptual approach to design um, to every type of level of product Mm -hmm. to show people an alternative to this saturation of logo-centric basic design that that we're in you know so yeah i wanted to even have a conceptual response to the logo you know like 
Mm-hmm. So there is, and that there to is no me, in, in a way, that is the that is the challenge, right? Because you can do the most conceptual work, but it will never see the light of day, or you people will have no access to it, or you can work out that thinking and to say, okay, how do I bring that thinking on a level where I have a conversation in the fashion world with the consumers? Because at the end of the day, it's a conversation, right? This is for the same reason why I don't write and never wanted to write for academic journals mm. about fashion. Because like what like 50 people are gonna read it. I'm not interested. You know, this is why like I'm interested to in sharing my ideas with the biggest amount of people and like get them to think. And I wanna be in that cultural conversation. And, yeah. and so that's how I feel like is maybe the challenge, but, and you have that challenge on a design side, but to unpack everything you just said, I think we have to go back in time and go back to your graduating thesis and then to new object research, because this was the crux of your conceptual thinking and realization of those concepts into product. Uh, at the highest level. And I think we need to get into that um, for yeah. the sake of our audience and really let them explain how you came up with those concepts and how what you said, it was really the concept that drove the design, that right. drove the creation of final products that no one could buy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It sounds, it sounds bad when you say it like that, but... Um... No, 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 no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I mean, you could buy it at, at the, in, in limited amounts. Well, but eventually. No, I don't. I think, yeah. Well, honestly, no. It, I, I, of course, I didn't mean it to sound bad because I think you also had this luxury of creating really incredible clothes uh, out of concepts. And again, for me, it's the thinking around the garment. That's what matters. It's, it's how you got to those garments. Mm. And of course, the, the final product is awesome. That to me is the meat. You know? mm. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's go, let's go back to new object research. Yeah. So, I mean, well, new object research was actually like this term that I had, you know, in my head while I was studying. Um, that's all I was doing. You know, I was just researching new objects. And mm-hmm. so it's important to know that for that period of my career, including, you know, in my, through my education, it, it wasn't, it wasn't about some aspiration to, to having a brand, you know, it, that was like an assumption, you know, um, that built expectations. But I was just researching. I never said anything differently to that. I was researching new objects. I'm interested in newness. I'm interested in objects. I wanted to recreate that feeling that I've told you about. Um, and I was just trying to figure out how to do it. 
what I did know when I graduated was how I didn't want to do it. That's what I, mm-hmm. that's what I knew. I knew I didn't want to be forced to design new ideas and new concepts and new narratives every six months. Right. There was just no way. Like it was just never gonna, like it was just not workable. Um, and, um, and I also, I also knew that the catwalk didn't work for me either. I was like, that's kind of mm. lame. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, <laughs> yeah. That, so there was, there was many things that I realized. <laughs> I honestly remember that the moment when my teacher asked me as I was, you know, in my last week at the Royal College of Art, um, asking me about what I'm going to do. And I just remember th- this feeling of dread of not knowing right. what was going to happen because you know, when, when you, when you have a clear objective or a clear target, like I am going to do a collection every six months and show it on a catwalk. Actually, there's so many benefits that come from that because that level of clarity can really push you to do the best version of that. Mm-hmm. So my biggest, um, my biggest problem is not having that is knowing that I can create whatever or, but, but, but also knowing that that format just doesn't work for me, you know, as great as that sounds that I'm, that I know that very clearly, it's actually a huge problem because Mm -hmm. anything is possible. And when anything is possible, it's very overwhelming. So I feel myself completely overwhelmed all the time. Um, However, I still knew and I know that I, that I want to create, you know, these sublime experiential transformative objects that are deeply meaningful and symbolic and have a kind of moral and social value, actually, that's timeless. You know, that's my, that's my objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I graduated from the Royal College with my collection when football hooligans become Hindu gods, um, which is incidentally 15 years ago, you know, um, this year. So it's like the 15 year anniversary of, of setting up my studio and of my, you know, of that collection. Uh, and it's the reason we're doing a couple of exhibitions that maybe we'll get into later. But, um, yeah, with that collection, um, I mean, basically it was, it was a story of a group of eight football hooligans who get involved in this racist attack, um, and end up accidentally killing a Hindu boy. Um, and I mean, this is a, you know, it's a fictional story, a fictional narrative. And they, that's the moment when they realize that they, um, you know, the error of their ways. And so they, because they can't bring this dead boy back to life, um, they do the next best thing and they devote their own lives to the dead boy's faith. Mm-hmm. And so my work has always had this element of, to, to some degree, a kind of autobiographical element in that I did grow up with racism 
you know, I did grow up as the dark-skinned boy who couldn't speak English when I arrived in England, mm-hmm. um, who was marginalized because of it. And, you know, it was, it was a struggle for me. Um, but, but at the same time, as, as my work has, has always referenced my own experiences indirectly through these conceptual narratives, it has also done so through the lens of positivity, of hope, even though there's like, it's like a positive response to negative experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, these eight hooligans, after they, they commit this racist attack, they're actually, they devote themselves to, to this dead boy's life and they start transforming into these Hindu, these Hindu gods. And so, um, so all these garments were like, you know, the kind of attire that football hooligans would wear, the kind of garments that Massimo Mosti would have researched to make the early versions of Stone Island and CP Company. And they're transforming into these, you know, otherworldly physical features of different Hindu gods. Um, and, and as fantastical as that sounds, my clear objective was to make these garments as wearable as possible. I wanted to make real Mm -hmm. garments, real clothes that could be worn. Um, And I guess, yeah, that's where it all started. And I I won a few awards with that collection, including international talent support, her incredible awards body and incredible people who have this incredible archive. So yeah, international talent support, ITS, we're based in Trieste in, in Italy. Um, you know, they're in, incredible people. They really support, you know, new, new creativity. Um, and they, you know, they, uh, I won a couple of awards from that. And one of them was a collection of the year award. And that meant that I had to come back the following year with a collection um, and be in the jury. And, you know, that, the last thing I wanted to do was make another collection. Um, mm-hmm. So it forced me to, like, prove myself, I guess, as a designer and contain the conceptual and methodical thinking that I had applied to my graduation collection and apply it to a completely different collection with a completely different narrative uh, and conceptual basis, but that yet had a, you know, an identifiable identity that was recognizable, you know. And um, and that's when I did the funeral of New Orleans, which was, you know, my, my second mm-hmm. sort of conceptual installment. And again, these were, you know, these were collections that were very much in you know, part of my research process, part of my research output. I suppose any young designer who is winning awards and being recognized for their work would typically want to convert that into commercial iterations and, um, you know, and create a brand, which was the assumption that I was doing that, but I wasn't, I was just researching you know i was just developing and researching and experimenting and so this this collection was you know a group of um 
again, a fictional narrative based on how, you know, how deeply affected I was by, by Hurricane Katrina and the devastation caused there. And in particular, the, um, the really poor handling of it by the American government at the time. Um, so yeah, this group of marching band jazz musicians, this iconography that I've always loved, you know, these black peaked lapel, double-breasted suits, white shirts, black ties, military hats, brass instruments. It's like such a, such an iconic aesthetic. Um, it's beautiful music. It's an amazing part of black history. Um, it just seemed like so unfair to see that devastated and so poorly dealt with, you know? Um, mm mm-hmm. So there's, there's again a kind of like social discourse there that talks about racism it, from a different, from a different lens. Um, but in, in, in any case, this, it, it was a conceptual response to it through the story of these, these five musicians who are all wearing the same suit, basically but their suit is constructed in the different pose of each musician. So you have, mm-hmm. you know, the, tr- the trumpet player, the trombone player, the saxophone player, etc., up to the sousaphone player, which is the, the, you know, huge instrument. And each of their, yeah, each of their garments is constructed in that pose of them playing that instrument. So it's like a study of conceptual functionalism in a way, but also each of their garments has this deconstructed instrument case around mm-hmm. their shoulders and the neck, which is a protection that can be protecting the instrument or protecting the, the musician. So there was really yeah. elaborately constructed instrument cases that deconstructed and reattached themselves around the, the instrument or the musician. And, and basically what it said is even if the musician dies, you know, he, t- he basically, in the concept, takes the instrument case off and protects the instrument with the case. Mm-hmm. So he gives up his mm-hmm. life to protect the, the instrument, which represents the musical heritage of New Orleans. So again, it's like a message of hope and, you know, kind of like of rebuilding and um, of resurrection in many ways. And there's many more tiers to that, many more levels to that. But so I, I guess I started building a kind of like archive of conceptual narratives through these, um, through these different like design research projects. And then eventually I did, I did a third one, which was really about, um, it was on the effects of ethnic stereotyping, which was based yeah. on the wrongful killing of John Charles de Menezes by anti-terror police, which was again, you know, a case of, as the title suggests, ethnic stereotyping. So again, it's racism being studied through through this lens. And so all of a sudden I had these these narratives, these concepts and these design ideas, which I was really proud of. I felt like they were really at the forefront of um, really conceptual thinking in a clothing context. But I was really not satisfied with their execution as objects. And Mm -hmm. that was the reason for me deciding to 
encapsulates all of those narratives, including even my BA narrative from Manchester, which was all about Mongolia. Um, yeah. And I captured those four narratives into a singular offer in 2013 titled New Object mm -hmm. Research. So it's still my disclaimer. I'm just presenting some research um, that, I, that I took back into the lab and basically did justice to the level of kind of narrative thinking that had gone, that had gone into them conceptual thinking that had gone into them with, you know, my goal being to create the, you know, the highest level of design and construction in the world. You know, I, mm -hmm. I wanted to, to make yeah. no compromise in the development of which these I products. think you did, which I think <laughs> you did, because I remember being in your studio and just examining these clothes and you were showing me everything and just, my mind was blown how complex and detailed those clothes were, but they weren't complex and detailed for the sake of complexity or detailing. You know, it's like what you said, you know, with justified design, like every single element of those clothes were there for a reason. So like, I didn't see an extra pocket for the sake of having an extra right. pocket, no, or Not like, yeah, yeah, or like another seam without there being a reason for that seam to exist. Yeah, and it was pretty intense, man. I mean, I even, I even wanted the seam itself to be proprietary. You know, I didn't want to borrow someone else's seam. If you think about it, like, mm. there's a real um, almost ethical responsibility behind designing newness. So I think it's when we design newness, whether it's a new seam or a new backpack, whatever, like when, when we see something new, it inspires us. It opens our minds, you know, and it inspires, inspires us to think new ourselves. That's what I'm trying to do. Like I'm trying to remind whoever is watching, whoever is interacting with these objects, that there are infinite possibilities and that we are programmed mm. to be limited by standardized solutions. Mm. And it's very difficult to think outside and outside of and beyond those standardized solutions, you know? Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm trying to design these features that are new, that haven't been seen before, that are conceptually informed. But I, I also think it's important, even the way the fabric is constructed or the way the fabric, the, the, the garments are constructed through these seams, to also aim to inspire the same, like, wow, I've never seen that before. So we invented this crazy seam that basically mm -hmm. had no mm -hmm. seam allowance. That meant we had to, we had to like build yeah. a kind of, um, like a tape heat heat seal tape frame around each panel, and then trim it before we mm -hmm. stitched it. Which tricked mm -hmm. the machine 
into thinking it was stitching something that had way more substance. So it was strong enough. Mm-hmm. The five millimeters either side of the seam were strong enough to sustain this stitch that requires no seam allowance. But the reason yeah. I did that wasn't just to like, hey, I've got my own seam that nobody else has. It was actually to um, overcome a frustration that I'd always had with a limitation that's inherent in conventional construction of clothing, mm-hmm. which is seam allowance. Seam allowance takes away from the ability to be um, true to the geometry of the pattern. So you can create mm-hmm. a pattern that has a perfect geometry um, that when you put it together with card, let's say, as you would with an architectural maquette, works perfectly. Right. And then when you stitch it in a conventional sense with a standardized seam allowance and all the rest of it, you're downgrading it by default because you're losing mm-hmm. the um, you're losing the um, what's the word like accuracy right it's losing it's losing fidelity to the to the linear integrity of the pattern mm-hmm. you know and this is just something that like people just accept and I was like what if we didn't accept that what if we created a <laughs> seam that allowed us to retain yeah. the geometric fidelity of the pattern 100%. It's like, okay, we're going to have to invent yeah. a, a seam that doesn't require seam allowance, but that works across yeah. all fabrics. Yeah. And so we I did. Know exactly, I know exactly of only one person who would think that way. One other you. person? All <laughs> oh, right. No, <laughs> no there is no other person. There is no other person. But what I also like is that you also took some conventional things and made them into something truly special and spectacular um, and almost recontextualized them. Like... Uh, I'm namely I'm thinking about a skull, right? Because a skull, a skull, you know, which prominently featured in your, in your work, a skull, it is loaded with meaning, but that meaning has been so stripped from a skull mm-hmm. because it's become so ubiquitous everywhere. It's become like this, you know, cheesy rock and roll symbol. It's become like something, you know, like Alexander McQueen <clears throat> used for good reason, but then it became bastardized and became its own thing where all these fashionistas just wanted something with a skull. Yeah. And you you took that, you, you sort of reclaimed that. You <laughs> said, no, like a skull, like let's go back to that meaning what it originally means, you know, like in Hamlet, you know, the sort of memento mori thing. And also let's make it so like technically difficult that people will be forced to not trivialize it. That's what it was for me. Because 
And, and, and uh, you know, when I saw those skull, that huge upside down skull backpack, I, that just like blew my mind. And the little ones too, mm. as well. Like how you, and you made them functional and you made them so special. You really like recontextualize them and reclaim them to say like, let's not forget what a skull means. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. I mean, it, it's kind of funny because when I was doing that, I mean, the, the initial collection for the Royal College of Art, where one of the outfits had this skull necklace. I mean, I first remember my, you know, my tutors kind of saying, well, wow, that looks amazing. But how the hell are you going to have the time to make, you know, all these skulls as well as all these other crazy outfits and garments and whatever. Um, um, but with particular, particularly that one, I, I remember thinking that that outfit and particularly that object was by far the most challenging for me because I, I felt that schools were cheesy, <laughs> you know, like, like everyone, like exactly. what you're saying, right? They're so cliched and I almost didn't want to do it because it was like, ugh. You know, it's a skull. Um, but I committed myself to, it was almost like a, I thought, if you can own the skull, if you can get away with doing a skull in a new way, it's like you're proving your worth as a designer. You know, mm. if a designer can, can take ownership of a skull. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's what is true to this research process that I keep sort of like reminding people of that this was my research process. My research period has been way longer than maybe some people would have liked, but it just is what it is, right? I was yeah. researching what I, what I could get away with. You know, I'm just like experimenting. And so when we did 2013, mm -hmm. I made sure actually as a kind of test to myself that the season before we launched it, we launched it in January, 2013 in June, 2012 was when I released my manifesto and I released it with just one product that we launched globally in two colorways, which was the, the Shiva skull bag. And I wanted the challenge of only releasing one item that was mm -hmm. something so difficult to get right because you could be written off you know if right. you get it wrong it's like Ugh, it's the cheesy school oh, yeah. guy <laughs> and so i did it as a kind of like <laughs> i don't know it's like an extreme test or something to myself mm -hmm. you know to I, i'm always trying to like not make my life easy i'm trying to do the opposite yeah make my life that's, yeah, welcome to the club. <laughs> but that, that's where I, that's where greatness comes from, right? On some level. Yeah, man. I think yeah, you got to push yourself. You got to you got to be uncomfortable. So yeah, I was I was trying to make myself uncomfortable. You, there's more learning that way, you know. Even if you mm -hmm. even if you make a mistake, there's just more learning that way. Exactly. And then you can get closer to greatness. Exactly. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know. And then after that, um, that, I guess that's where we were, right? New Object Research 2013. 
mm-hmm. the seam, yeah. the skull. And, and at the time, you, you know, the, yeah. sorry, sorry. No, no, go ahead, go on. I was going to say, like, at the time, I was very hopeful. And I was thinking, okay, this is it, right? I've got my product language. I've got my ingredients. I can be a chef. And I was rereading the article that you did, like that mammoth feature that you did in your magazine. And I was like, wow, like, I was really hopeful that that would be it, you know? Like, I can mm-hmm. now create a brand from these ingredients. I've got my own seam. I've got my own pockets. I've got... Um, and it just wasn't it. You know, it really, that wasn't it. And there's a few reasons why that wasn't it. And I think that's, you know, that's the most interesting thing for me when I reflect on the past, I don't know, well, eight years or whatever since then. I think, you you know, the most important thing was, first of all, my recognition that that wasn't it. And it's like, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to tell everyone that wasn't it. So I'm not going (laughs) to, that was a one, (laughs) that was a one off. Sorry guys. Still wasn't it. Can't have it. (laughs) Even, even though it was, I mean, no, I released it. People could buy it at least in some limited form. No, it was great. But by the way, man, like I didn't compromise one millimeter on that, on that production. We lost money on every single piece that we sold. Really? Of course. You know what? I'm not surprised you say that because I remember looking at those clothes and I was like, how in the world are you going to manufacture it? That's going to be hard. Again, it was learning. It was a learning experience. Um, but of course, it wasn't scalable. And and that was, you know, so if anyone's got one of those pieces, like, they got a bargain, you know, because even at retail, right. it was, I couldn't have afforded to sell it direct. You know, it's the fact that I wholesaled it, I mean, it was just madness. <laughs> I know, yeah. That is yeah. madness. But I'm glad yeah. I did it because it put it out there and I learned from it. And, um, but, but it wasn't it partly because... It wasn't scalable, um, but importantly, because it was too suffocating for me to have the constraint of existing within these concepts, within these narratives. At the time, I was thinking, oh, I can do more outfits relating to funeral of New Orleans. I can do more outfits every season or whatever relating to when football hooligans become Hindu gods, introduce new gods. and But really... Like, I didn't want that to be it. You know, that's not, that's, that's just not conducive to just free flowing creativity. I'd be like constrained by this, by this. I wanted it to be more personal. And and that's the final thing, you know, the, the identity of new object research 2013. And incidentally, the identity of New Object Research 2016, which was the puppet show that came three years later. The puppet mm-hmm. show, as I said earlier, was a transition because for the first time it was a, um, the key thing there was that it was an exploration towards, as I said earlier, just designing garments. Even though the show itself was a conceptual narrative of my personal journey, the garments mm-hmm. were garments for the first time ever. Right. However, 
it still wasn't it. So I'd gotten rid of the first thing of like the conceptual limitation. It's like, oh, I can design garments. Mm -hmm. But the identity of the garments, the identity of the design language, the aesthetic, and even to be fair, the narrative nature of those stories behind New Object Research 2013, that immersive, the immersive storytelling for me was also missing. Um, but the key mm -hmm. thing was that with all of New Object Research 2013 and 2016 and the whole process, what I realized was that it was almost like it represented one half of me. This for me is the most interesting thing, my most interesting learning. It represented my left brain. So my mm -hmm. analytical, logical, engineering, technical, thinking side. And I, I started feeling this oppression from my left brain when I released my manifesto in 2012. The 2012 right. New Object Research Manifesto is like a manifesto to my left brain. And it's no coincidence mm -hmm. that in the same year, in 2012, I started my daily drawing practice, the Daily Sketchbook Archives. So that will be 10 years next year that I started do, doing a sketch every single day. Wow. And it was really a therapy thing for me. It was a way for me to rebel against the doctrine established by my manifesto, by this hyper-limiting, restrictive, conceptual thinking, my daily sketches allowed me to just, just do a, you know, whatever on the page every day mm -hmm. and not think about it and stop being so precious and just share it. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter, like move on, like being the present moment and stop overthinking and overanalyzing. New object research was my analytical self was my left brain. The daily sketchbook archives are an expression of my right brain, my imagination, my free thinking, my, my rebelliousness, you know, my, like the cartoon characters in my mind, in my spirit. And when I truly reflected on new object research, after 2016, you know, I reflected on 2013 and I was like, it's too restricted by um, constricting concepts. It's not scalable and it doesn't represent who I am. Like it only represents like one half of me. And then when I fast forwarded, you know, three years later, I really stuck on, it doesn't represent both sides of me still. And that's mm -hmm. when I set off to create a kind of final world, a final thing that went away from the research. I stopped new object research and I use all of that research and all of that learning to create a new world, which is the, the final destination that is going to be something that is completely representative of both sides of my identity. So in a way, new object research and the learning from that become one half of this world, but I also allow myself to bring in the, the, the child version of me, you know, this more mm -hmm. free, rebellious, 
imaginative, maybe like fantastical side. The, the aesthetic was like too serious somehow, you know, mm-hmm. and too black and white, you know, and um, it wasn't fun enough somehow. Mm-hmm. So now that your Dionysian and Apollonian sides have come together, yeah. what, what are we looking at? <laughs> what what are we looking at? What are we? So so yeah, like well, I went, I went, I took all of those developments and started creating, putting putting things together. Like I started creating like hybrid outfits, and I did a collaboration with uh, Wayne McGregor for his uh, autobiography show and mm-hmm. you know he's an amazing choreographer had an amazing experience and again you, just more learning and I started slowly creating an aesthetic a visual identity and a narrative mm-hmm. that was a narrative about this duality my left brain versus my right brain and how that can become a non-duality, you know, this complete merging of, of these opposing sides. Um, and at the same time, I developed the exact same concept of non-duality through opposing left and right brain um, through the DSA, through my, through my, in a way, streetwear concept, where I wanted to challenge those conventions of, of branding and, and logos and graphics. Mm-hmm. So what maybe most people don't realize is that the DSA represents the same concept. It's a parallel concept as anatomy land, which is the real landing place for all of this thinking and all of this process and all of this work which I have previewed earlier this year. I did a, an NFT collection of characters. An opportunity came up for me to preview the concept through these really beautiful digital sculptures that we made um, that I wanted, again, to come out of my comfort zone and develop something in a new way that allowed me to also start presenting a completely new and immersive narrative, which was anatomy land um, in a, in a new way. And so anatomy land is basically an immersive multidisciplinary world that has product at the core, mm-hmm. but has these characters at the core that tell this, this very deep immersive story um, that is about, the, the, you know, this, these two factions that live in this world, anatomy land. One represents yin energy and one represents yang energy. And it basically like represents the duality and the conflict that we all create inside our own minds. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the toxicity of duality, of, of, of thinking we have to be one thing or the other. Um, but ultimately what I'm most interested in is the aesthetics that are, developed and created as a result of me researching and develop and delving into this duality of Mm -hmm. the 
the, the technical and the analytical on one side and then the just complete imaginary and fantastical on the other side. And ultimately I'm creating garments for the first time that I'm looking at and I'm getting that feeling that I got from new object research where I'm like, this is the most sublime product I've ever seen. But it is like, it just has this other, whole other angle that is, I don't know, it's kind of like things just interact with each other and they're like kind of like toys, but the most progressive mm -hmm. conceptual toys. You know that feeling when you're like, it's an amazing toy where they're garments and they're very mm -hmm. beautiful, like crazy constructed garments. But they have this, I want people to reconnect with that feeling that they had as a child, sure. whether it was when you were watching a cartoon or playing with a toy or reading a comic book. We all have that, like, I guess we find that from the products that we choose to interact with. But there's a sort of playfulness that has been stripped away from it, from yeah. that experience, because it's not... Um, maybe I don't know because it doesn't seem like it has relevance because we're like we're too grown up as adults mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to play well, I am totally with you either because I always say and it's a mantra I say to myself but I say it publicly too like never lose the childlike sense of wonder the mm. ability to be to to want, you know be wowed by something to have that sense of wonder i think it's unbelievably precious and i think we do lose it as we grow up we tend to lose it and i and i very much struggle also not to lose that and that's why i love it when something excites me and because you feel alive uh, coincidentally, yeah. as uh, rereading Nietzsche, you know, and not to sound all overly intellectual on you guys, mm -hmm. but, you know, for him, the final stage of, you know, superhuman, once you renounce your slave mentality that society teaches you, the way you reconstruct yourself is by becoming a child. Yeah. You have to have that sense of wonder in order to really be alive at the end of the day to really 100%. feel alive 100 percent. no I, I couldn't agree with you more man uh, i guess i'd never framed my practice and my intentions in in that sense with those words but it's exactly that i think you know there's there's a there's a concept in zen buddhism that is beginner's mind is aspiring yeah. to be a beginner, right? Rather than to be experienced or knowledgeable. It's like, like, um, you know, like Blake's songs of innocence and experience, you know, the songs mm -hmm. of innocence is, is heaven. The songs of experience is hell, you know? Yeah. Um, innocence, wonder and beginner's mind it's all pointing towards the same thing is back to back to that innocence where you see things that 
That's why I think there's such a responsibility to create newness because mm-hmm. it, it it brings that wonder and, and that, like, yeah, that sense of discovery and excitement in us. And if you really think about, like, the brands that have become even, like, the powerhouse brands, really, through, you know, through design, really did so through through that thinking, whether it's Apple or Nike, you know, they really established themselves as like, I mean, when they, when they were establishing themselves, I mean, you know, in particular, as brands who were thinking like children, you know, mm-hmm. taking risks and creating new things that were weird at the time, that were unusual. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think there's a kind of sense of responsibility to remind people of that sense of wonder and to help to go towards that childlike sensibility. So it's kind of a weird thing to explain without without showing it. But these objects are really like they have this really pure, innocent, sort of fantastical beauty at the same time as having the deeply intensive engineering and construction as new object research did whilst mm-hmm. being scalable. So for me, it's just a, myth, it's a methodology, you know, is like I have to research, experiment, then analyze, take the learning and I just get to work, you know? So mm-hmm. I had to, I had to solve those problems and that's what I've done. It just took me like, you know, six years since, since my last presentation or whatever. But so, yeah, like I can understand how you know, people getting frustrated or whatever, going back to that whole thing. But um, I'm here like working day and night, just trying to solve those things to be able to bring yeah. the most aspirational, inspirational product to the world that truly represents me and also the social and moral values, even there I say spiritual values, philosophical values that I believe in, in a scalable way. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's like no mean feat. And to do <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and listen, I was just pulling your chain before because I, I think, you know, you define yourself as an artist first and foremost, and no one should dictate the pace to an artist. And I think the duty of an artist is first and foremost to himself. And I think you sort of, I think you are sort of, you are a living and breathing example of that. And uh, I think it's right. I'm personally very happy that because in fashion, we're always, in, you know, fashion equals amnesia, right? We forget things so fast here. Mm-hmm. And I am glad that sort of you coming back with something great and that people remember what you did already almost, you know, 10 years ago, whatever, eight years ago. Mm. And that's very relevant. Um, so I am, I am very excited about what's coming in Anatomy Land. I can't wait to see what it's going to look like. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's really exciting. Um, I am 
yeah, I, I can't wait because now I can't visualize any of it, which is great because I can only go back to what you've done. And so I'm sure there will be elements of that. And that already makes me excited to see mm. what's coming. Um, yeah, man. It's the whole, yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole world. I'm excited too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you. I want to switch. I, I want to switch gears. Uh, unless you have something else you want to say about it. Autonomy land. If you don't, I want to switch gears and I want to talk about your, uh, say, extracurricular curricular activities. Right. I want to talk about your, you know, designs for Stone Island, for CP Company. I want to talk about, you know, the kit you did for the in, uh, um, England football team, your time at G Star, uh, you know, all these things, like if that's cool with you. Yeah, of course, man. I mean, yeah, what do you want to know? Where do you want to start? Uh, let's let's start with uh, Stone Island and CP Company. You know, how did you how did you meet Carlo Rivetsi? How did this whole thing come about? Uh, how did you end up there doing these incredible special projects? Oh, thanks, man. Well, that was crazy, you know, because, you know, as, as I've already said, um, and as I think you already know, those brands that originated from Massimo Osti were the reasons that I became a designer. They were the transitional moment for me. As I said earlier, you know, they opened the portal. Um, and um, so, I, you know, a few years later, I found myself at the Royal College of Art and the craziest thing happened because when I, the, the only thing I want, the only thing I projected and manifested and hoped for, and I didn't tell this to anybody, was for my collection to be the last one on the catwalk, you know, which is like the big thing. Because I'd been going to the Royal College of Art on my tutor's ticket for the pr previous two years to see the final collection. And it was always the one, mm -hmm. you know, the one at the end that was like the, the kind of uh, celebrated collection and it was like the big exciting moment. So I had these big aspirations to, uh, to be that collection. And, and it was, you know, it was selected to be, which was when football hooligans become Hindu gods. And so we were at the press um, show. They had like five shows, whatever, like one for the uni, one for friends and family, one for press. We're at the press mm -hmm. show, I think. And, um, and my collection came on to, the Stone Roses, I Want to Be Adored. That was the, the, mm -hmm. the soundtrack that I chose. And then immediately as they came off the catwalk, I had these two guys approach me and they started speaking to me with Italian accents. And they got the business cards out to introduce themselves to me. And they were from sportswear company, from the company that at that time owned CP Company and Stone Island. And... Um, they were the head product developers. They were, they'd been sent by Carlo Rivetti. They'd flown over from Italy to, uh, to come and see my collection, which was just a, the craziest thing. So I found myself in, my, in, in, in the place where we used to sit with our portfolios and showing them through my portfolio, showing them through the collection. And as it turned out, one of my tutors, one of the visiting tutors that we had 
was Simon Foxton, the amazing, iconic sure. stylist. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, who just got me straight away, you know? He was like, okay, this is exciting. You know, some kid from the north who's really from Argentina, who's mm-hmm. passionate about football, about Stone Island and CP Company, who's doing these crazy, weird sculptural concepts. So apparently he got on the phone to Stone Island and CP, to Sportswear Company, and said, you, you should come and check this kid out before anyone else gets their hands on him or whatever. <laughs> and, um, he, he, he never told me that. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, it really is thanks to him. Um, oh. and, and so, yeah, we had a chat. And then, you know, the next news was that they invited me over to, 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 to meet Carlo. And within two weeks, I believe, I was there. Or maybe it was, I think it was the award ceremony in Trieste for ITS. And I invited, I invited them there. One or two of them came to the ceremony, which was great because I won a couple of awards there. And then I think after that, I ended up in, uh, I think, in Milan for my first time I met Carlo. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Ravarino, I can't remember. But, yeah, that's how it came about. And, um, you know, pretty much straight away, he was like, look, just do your thing. Like, let's work on something together. We don't know what it's going to be. At that time, they weren't doing collaborations or anything. Um, mm-hmm. Let's not put any pressure on it. Go in the archives, have a think, use your brain, just imagine stuff. We ended up developing a jacket. It took us like a year you know, to develop the first jacket, Modular Anatomy. Um, mm-hmm. It was just like an experiment, really. And then we did another, another concept, um, which was Articulated Anatomy. So obviously this whole anatomical yeah. theme. And it was the same, the same season I started working with them was incidentally um, the same season that, well, that Simon Foxton and Nick, Nick Griffiths, mm-hmm. who were working together with Anson, like their company, they started being the sure. art directors for Stone Island. So the whole aesthetic identity of the brand changed from a marketing perspective which was amazing and, you know, still stands to this day, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And also the same, you know, the same uh, season that Errolson started mm-hmm. Shadow Project for them. So it was like a whole new energy. We were all like, we were all in there with Carlo trying to, trying to you know, just do new stuff, like just having fun and doing cool stuff. Um, and then, yeah, so after two seasons... Carlos sat me down. I remember that was in Milan. And, you know, one of the biggest conversations of my life when he asked me to to redesign the the Mille Miglia, the goggle jacket for CP company for the twentieth mm-hmm. anniversary. You know, I was like, Yeah, this is just crazy. You can't <laughs> you can't make this up, you know. It's like gone full circle, literally. Um Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever been as scared in my whole life, you know, to to touch yeah. the garment that inspired me to become a designer. It was a crazy, it was a crazy, crazy thing. And um, yeah, and again, an, another amazing experience. And you know, look, I, I was just trying to do 
do justice to the original concept and idea. And all all I did was just really take Massimo's thinking and just exaggerate it, you know, make mm -hmm. this jacket like the most drivable, ergonomic um, version of the original. So it became so extreme in its ergonomics and its functional detailing that it kind of became like a machine in itself. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know the and fabric. The, was... the amount of design that went into those jackets is incredible. Yeah, it was crazy, man. It was fun. We created like these driving position sculptures to shape it around of, and um, they they had this amazing. They'd been they developed this incredible dyeing process called Tinto Terra, which was dyeing with earth, literally. Mm -hmm where they fuse bond specially cultivated patches of earth in specific pigments to the fabric, right? It's a crazy, crazy pro process of how you apply the pigment through soil. Um, mm. And, you know, we took that process and applied it to Gore-Tex because I, I wanted right. a jacket that looked like the 1920s era of racing that, um, you know, open top racing that Massimo had originally referenced. So it should look vintage. It should look aged. It should look like it was from the 1920s, but it had to work today and in the future. It had to be waterproof, it had to cover your legs perfectly, it had to fit a driving helmet inside. The goggles had to work. The watch view had to work. It, you know, um, and so we created this jacket that was incredibly futuristic and completely waterproof, but it looked like it had been, you know, like a dug up. It was like a dug up antique because of this uh, mm -hmm. dyeing process. Um, yeah, and then that you know that got nominated for the Design of the Year award by the Design Museum, which was a great honor, and. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, it, the most important thing was it was well received by the hardcore yeah. CP fans, you know, and, and it's still oh, yeah. kind of a part of their, their iconography. So I got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Yeah. And and as as it was with the stone island jackets that you did which were also great um the one that was all like modular with all the panels yeah um yeah, that, that was, was incredible and and then the um i think it was the articulated anatomy is the one that i had it was sort of the windbreaker oh yeah uh well it was modular anatomy well modular anatomy was like I a had... um like like the padded one with all the okay. all, okay. all the components, yeah. Yeah. I had I had the windbreaker, like the the silvery kind of windbreaker with uh, articulated. Oh, oh yeah, that's yeah articulated anatomy, which was yeah. a theme. You know, that's a theme that I've revisited and continue to revisit. You know, the idea of clothing moving with your body, you know, rather than your body moving mm -hmm. inside of inside of it, yeah. you know, inside of garments growing and shrinking as your skin does. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've been consistently interested in. Yeah. 
Which brings us to the England t team uh, yeah. football kit. How old were you? And you get to design a uniform know, for right? the national team. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Well, it's again, it's another, it's another crazy part of the story because, you know, in many ways I got into, into design because of football, you know, and um, all of a sudden I'd, I'd done, well, yeah, I'd already designed the three projects with Stone Island and CP company. And pretty much after that, directly after that, I was asked initially just to join a consultancy team. Um, mm -hmm. I was approached by Nike who had bought Umbro at the time um, to, to join this group of thinkers. And they were rethinking Umbro as a brand. I had actually already done a project with, for Umbro um, when I was at the Royal College of Art. Mm -hmm. um, it was actually a team project, interestingly. And in my team was um, Chris Rayburn, Christopher Rayburn, who, sure, has, sure, sure. you know, he's, he's got his great, um, great brand based in London. Um, and... Um, we were in the same team together and we, we won this competition. And, um, when I graduated, they, they contacted me actually a few times, to be honest, to try and do a collaboration. And I just felt like it wasn't right. I was working with Stone Island I was working with CP and mm -hmm. I just didn't feel like Umbro was right for me at that time, you know? Um, and then when, I was, I was, I just had too much going on. And when those projects finished, I got another call, but this time it was from Nike, you know, and it was a different conversation. And he was like talking about the future of the brand, the future of the business. And it was like a bigger conversation and for me to come on as a consultant. And so I said, yes, because initially it was like a, it, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so I found myself in this group of thinkers and creative directors from, from Nike. And it was just a great, amazing opportunity and experience to share my thoughts and learn. And, you know, seemingly what I had to share really resonated with them. And, you know, before I knew it, I was asked to, to be the creative lead for the, for the 2009 home kit for the England team. <laughs> That's great. Wait, how old were you? So I was, um, so they was, they would have asked to me when I was maybe 28, Amazing. 28, like my daughter had just been born, I think. Mm. And yeah, literally. And the, the and then the, the following year, you know, we're, it's like the year before the world cup and I'm there at Wembley. I've been working with the players you know, it was like crazy, crazy experience. And they really let me just do my thing. You know, I was like working on my sculptures and stretching pieces of fabric and creating these weird Frankenstein garments. And there was all this pressure from, from the FA, you know, to present beautiful garments. And the guys from Nike were really supportive of like, no, 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 like, 
we're going to present this weird Frankenstein thing first and we're going to build it from the inside out. And they really got on my thinking and, you know, really fair play to them because we, we constructed that thing properly and beautifully. And, mm -hmm. it's, you know, I, I love it to this day. And then the success of that meant that they gave me a little bit more free reign. Well, actually free reign. I was less, I had less of a kind of a entourage around me for the awakening <laughs> for, for the for the second one they were like you know what just do your thing and mm. so i kind of like i was i was a bit more alone for that one and that was the red one that came out the following year that coincided with the uh, you know with the uh, world cup and um yeah in many regards like I, I i enjoyed that one even more i was able to create a kind of design language that was more complete i guess but they both you know they both did the same thing really of incorporating timeless design language which was really from those original kits from the 60s um incorporating that timeless design language into f like a study of futurism you know there was so forward thinking mm -hmm. in these garments but i wanted to make the most forward thinking kits and then hide all the Right. Futuristic features. I wanted them to look like 60s kits from the distance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you look closer, they are like, it's like a spaceship. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> the kits up to that point had been really basic with looking bells like and whistles to make them feel valuable and futuristic and right. to basically to justify a price point. Right, you know? right. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. I remember you were saying you know, when we spoke for uh, my article that you want to, not that you want to, but you do imbue the most, uh, what look like the, the most like, you know, scalable garments, uh, simplest garments, but with the same exact amount of thinking that you view your most conceptual and difficult clothing yeah exactly exactly i think that's you know as i was saying with anatomy land and, and what i consider to be a failure with new object research you know it, it failed to do that it didn't have that scalability and for me that's a failure um mm -hmm. it, I, you can imbue that into a commercial garment um, and, you know, as a football fan, as somebody who'd grown up with football and somebody who would never have bought the official kit because it just didn't look good with your jeans or whatever, you know, as kids growing up or even a bit older going to the pub, it just didn't look right. You know, I just wanted to create the coolest, most beautiful, most progressively engineered kit but that also would look great with your jeans or whatever you were wearing. Um, right. And that for the same amount of money, you were buying really like complex design, you know, because I was, I mm -hmm. was working day and night on sculpting these things, like constructing these very minimal yet complex patterns so that they would work in a certain way. And I just knew once I got it right, then it just goes to the factory. 
then you can just make a million right. of them. It was on my shoulders to put the extra time in to create the archetype that would then be repeated. But mm -hmm. if there isn't someone exactly. there tinkering away in the shed, like figuring out the original archetype that's then repeated, you're not re-standardizing the, the, the original problem, which is mm -hmm. the hyper-standardized solutions that most people are using to, you know, to solve the problems. So right. I knew it was on my shoulders to create something special by just me in my studio tinkering away. And that's what mm -hmm. I did. And, and that's why we were able to create something that was really special that cost the same amount as the kit before and the kit after. Right. You know? And then so at some point you ended up, you go to G-Star and become the creative director of G-Star. So... Tell me how that happened and how did you tackle going from being sort of loaded as one of the most conceptual menswear designers to going to oh, a, a very commercial brand? Mm. And how did you, how did you, you know, how did you, what was the challenge and how did you tackle and, and how was your experience going from basically only my brain dictates what I do to like commercial constraints and being within a bureaucracy of a fairly large firm. Yeah. How did you deal with those constraints? Well, look for me, first of all, <clears throat> my primary objective is always learning, you know? So there was a clear opportunity for me to learn and to, at least to learn and to hopefully experiment, right? Um, to learn from a large organization like that, who had had commercial success, who had shown me multiple examples in their archive of things that really resonated with me, of like pure design that I really saw in their archives. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, there's a real potential here for me to have a positive impact into their trajectory, but at the very least for me to learn, right, from, from a big corporation like this. Um, initially, the, the agreement was purely as a consultant. I just joined them as a creative consultant. We didn't really know where that was going to go. Where that took us was, um, because, you know, like I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't know much about that brand at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I did like obviously a lot of research and we had a few meetings where they really showed me these incredible things from their archive. Like I don't know if you've seen these old like denim objects and constructed things. And there's a lot of things that actually were reminiscent of things that I'd designed, that I'd constructed. And it was mm -hmm. like, wait, what? Well, you have this whole <laughs> thing that you that you make, like I had no idea. Um, and so I was like, okay, if, I, if we can tap into that and mm -hmm. I can maybe help you get rid of some of the questionable things, right? then there could be something interesting that happens here. And so we, we agreed to, to go ahead. And as a consultant, the, one of the first things I, I did was actually to, to help them on the, on the designs of the, um, of the flagship stores. 
So they had the new flagship store that they'd acquired in London, actually, on Oxford Street, um, just opposite John Lewis. And then all of a sudden, I found myself working with a team of architects and designers, and um, I developed this, you know, kind of like a crazy concept about the stockroom being extracted and elevated and there was this glass mezzanine that just was full of denim as you walked in and only the staff could go up there and it was the most aspirational part architecturally of the building and and then I created these um, sculptures for the windows and we did like kind of like art display in the windows and it was you know it was really it, it was a moment it was great and all of a sudden the the, the following um Flagship stores kind of took from that blueprint. And, you know, it was a lot of fun working with, with that team. There's an incredible amount of talented people that were working there. And um, I was trying to consult on the collection by having meetings, right, with the design teams, etc. But I soon realized that I just had to, um, I had to create some pieces. So eventually, after absorbing a lot of information and a lot of knowledge, and delving deeper into the archive and in a way understanding the problem because design is problem solving, you know, so I was really being a designer at that stage. Mm -hmm. I was understanding the problem in order to solve it. And I thought the best way for me to solve the problem is just to show a solution. And so I used my own studio and my own team to create a group of prototypes, well, about four prototypes that I presented and you know they went down really well they they were in, immediately absorbed into the collection and they were like these like crazy prototypes some of which could be worn as they were some of which could become like 20 different things and i was really proud of them you know they were like really beautifully designed raw denim pieces that were really true to mm -hmm. them as a brand and my authenticity as a designer and they were imbued with narrative and con concept and 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 you know technical innovation and and quite simply what we decided to do is to replicate that process that i had done in my own studio with my own team but internally so all of a sudden i became the innovation director and i had my own team mm -hmm. that i was able to recruit um i had my own pattern cutter my own seamstress my own designer my own men's designer my own women's designer my own product developer and my job was to create um, a collection of innovative products on a seasonal basis that would then be used to go into the, you know, to, to, to invigorate the mainline collection. And so, you know, it made a lot of sense. And so mm -hmm. I said yes to that, to that challenge. And then something interesting happened is that as we were developing these prototypes and they were all so like, you know, everything's in the same color and the same, it was so like constrained. Yeah. We, we found a real beauty in them just on a rail. And then I suggested that we actually use the prototype collection at the highest level of construction as a capsule for the brand that would become the innovation capsule of what would become 
the integrated innovation in the collection the following season. So it's like a it's like a, the concept mm. car model. We're showing the concept, so yeah, showing yeah. and selling the concept yeah. car to a more elevated mm-hmm. audience, perhaps before it gets, you know, diffused, diluted, whatever. In you know, hopefully, in a, as tasteful way as possible into the main collection. And so that's what became mm-hmm. raw research, and which became a great success. And we we had amazing press and coverage, and all of a sudden, people were talking about them and about us and we're in the right stores you know it was again another moment and um i think that you know the challenge and the difficulty came from really sustaining the purity of that vision and the integrity that i had towards that vision with a wider brand so as i became the creative director um it was difficult to synchronize, to find that synergy, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there were, there were certain decisions that had to be made, whether inevitably or not that I just wasn't too comfortable with, let's say. And at the same time, Mm -hmm. I felt like I had really, you know, my legacy with the, with the brand remains through the work of raw research. And I felt like I had given and received as much as, as was possible. I had learned a lot and I was able to, to provide and help a lot. We registered a huge amount of designs and patented re- designs, etc. Um, yeah, and it was just a natural time, you know, it was a natural time to leave and yeah. uh, especially because I really felt ready to start working on developing these two ideas that had been, you know, bubbling away, one being anatomy land and the other one being the DSA, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, which is to say, you know, you haven't been idle all these years. <laughs> it's not, it's <laughs> not, not like definitely you. Definitely Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cool. you know, the yeah, opportunities to learn is like, you're going to take it, man. Like, you know. Of course, of course. And also on that scale, and I don't know if it gave you, I'm sure it gave you insight into a way how like companies work on that scale. Yeah, massively, yeah. massively, incredibly valuable experience. Yeah. How did you feel about like coming back to Burnley to your hometown in a way and uh, moving your studio there and being away from major centers of fashion, clothes making, whatnot? It was a very conscious decision. You know, it was when I, when I left Amsterdam, my life up until that moment, up until that moment was becoming increasingly my lifestyle was becoming increasingly difficult. It wasn't sustainable. You know, at, at the pinnacle of, of the difficulty, I was, I was spending every single week, I was in three different places. You know, I, my place in Burnley with my daughter, then my studio mm-hmm. and my, you know, my apartment in London and then Amsterdam, you know, where I would be every week right. as a consultant. At the, you know, in the initial stage, and that, and that continued for years and years. You know, I was on 
like at least two flights a week, sometimes four flights a week. And it was just exhausting. When I, yeah. then, then eventually I moved to Amsterdam. So I cut one place out and my whole team and my studio moved to, to Amsterdam. Um, so that became easier, but still I was having to fly back to Manchester to get to Burnley to be with my daughter mm-hmm. um, at least every other weekend. And then when I decided to leave Amsterdam, there was no way that I was going to go back to London and still have this traveling thing. You know, my daughter is my, has always been my number one priority. And she was born in London, but when me and her mom separated, they moved uh, up north where, where her mom is from. Um, so, you know, for a few years is when I had to do all the traveling and at, at the earliest chance that I would have to, to set up base up here, you know, I would, I would take that to be, to be more available as a father. And I felt like at the time of leaving G-Star, I just, I felt like the research process was over, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the research process in terms of collaborations, but also in terms of new object research and right. my ideas were quite clear in terms of with the developments that I had to undertake. And I didn't need to be in the city. I didn't, I, mm-hmm. I actually needed to not be in the city. You know, I needed, I needed to not have the distractions of the city. And, um, I just needed focus and I needed, I needed, um, I needed the time and space to, f- to basically get to work and finish these developments. And so it just seemed like a really logical move for me and um, allowed me to conserve a lot of energy and, and, well, put it into my work and into being a father. So it's yeah. probably one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah. No, I, I understand. I Same here. I've always wanted to be next to my daughter until she grows up and has her own life, which yeah. literally happened this year. <laughs> she just turned 18. So right? I, I completely... She's turning 18 in two weeks. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear you, man. That's cool. And so how does, how does it feel to be like back in your hometown? How big is Burnley? I'm, I'm really terrible at things like that, like population, I guess you mean, or square meters. I have no idea about either of those. In general, like, it's okay. like a it's well, like it's a, a small, small medium town. it's like a medium sized town, you know. Okay. It's just north of Manchester is an old industrial town. So the the building in which we are is like an old, really beautiful old cotton mill. Mm-hmm. Um, Burnley was the epicenter of the industrial revolution with regards to fabric. So Manchester was the epicenter of the industrial revolution. So it's like steam like steam engine etc right locomotive um burnley was the epicenter of fabrics and cotton um and they really pioneered a a lot of innovations in the victorian times and and actually the mill that we're in now which was an old cotton mill was revolutionary in itself because the housing that they had designed for the factory workers, which is really 
famous up north in the north of England, these like terraced houses that are like in one block of, in one mm-hmm. building, you have like these mini houses all stacked next to each other kind of thing. Right. That is like a kind of like part of the iconography of northern British towns. Well, the terraced housing for this mill was actually integrated into the mill building. Um, so it's called oh, Slater wow. Terrace. And it's, yeah, it's like a crazy thing of a hybrid of housing and, and, um, and mill. And, you know, we have this amazing, crazy open plan unit that we've been able to re-architecture internally and create these spaces within. And the, the huge chimney is inside of it. And um, amazingly filled with all, all the original features and it's by the canal, which is what they call the super slow way, you know, where they, they used to bring the goods in and out of the mills on water. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and it, you know, it's like an, it's, it's a proper British working class town, you know, with working right. class people. Um, and it's very much culturally where my roots are. Um, but it's not where my cultural, you know, other than my original inspiration to become a designer and the culture that still is very much a part of me and a part of the town, primarily centering around football. I guess my, apart from that, my cultural um, stimulation still very much comes from outside of, outside of Burnley and you know I'm I'm in I'm in the town, in this mill, but I live in the countryside outside of Burnley. I'm like in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Just have this incredible view. Oh, okay, it's old farmhouse. It's complete stillness. Um, you know, very blessed to be there. And that's again something else that I really yearned that I really looked for. You know, after years of being in the big cities, it was just too distracting. You know, I. I needed mm-hmm. to get to work I, literally day and night. You know, I, I do a shift in the studio and we're problem solving and designing and making. Um, and then I do a shift at night, you know, where I go, wow. where I go inward. Yeah. It's yeah, nonstop. Yeah. yeah. Just thinking. Well, cool, man. That, <laughs> I think that's been the most stimulating conversation Oh, thanks, uh, man. It's, it's really great. Uh, and thank you for having the patience to recount your life for us. But I think it's important to, to, to not only just situate our audience, but also like to see your progress and everything you've done uh, recapped and just to get back inside your brain, which I think is, uh, again, I'll say it again one of the most fascinating thinkers in fashion design that I've talked to. I mean, since our that first conversation, like at Dover street market, whatever, yeah. 2013, I think um, it's, it's really been great. And uh, I can't wait to see what you cook up with anatomy land and uh I'm sure we'll be talking in the near future about that because I'm really, really curious um, what's going to come out of it. 
yeah man i'm yeah i'm excited too and you know thank you thank you for the opportunity to talk and you know to share this craziness as you know as i'm trying to make sense of it <laughs> life <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um and um yeah and i just like to say to, to people listening that um you know we've got these two exhibitions coming up that are going to mark 15 years it's the 15 year anniversary of, of my studio um and you know i wanted to make sure they opened kind of like as late as possible in the year to mark kind of end of this year and they literally mm-hmm. open next next weekend i guess it's around the time this might come out i, th- I think it's the yeah. 18th and the 19th and one is oh, in yeah so what one is in one china is in hong kong and one is in hong kong the one in china is mm-hmm. in uh, with zovin you know this the store zovin Mm-mm. is it in, in shanghai Shen, or shenzhen shenzhen okay and uh, yeah you know they're an amazing store and um you know he's zovin who owns it is also a collector of my work and he's been a supporter he's they've bought all the dsa you know since it has come out but he's primarily an avant-garde store and you know really beautifully curated um and um and then we have another exhibition in Hong Kong uh, with Ink mm-hmm. and Peter, who who owns sure. and runs Ink, is he, he's a long time. I love Peter. He's <laughs> yeah. a lovely guy. Yeah, he's a big collector of your work. Yeah, he's yeah he's a big collector. He's probably the biggest, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's he's amazing. He's he's been out here to visit us in the studio and always been very supportive and. You know, he knows more about some of the products than than me in some cases. Definitely knows more about how many were produced. Like he has this crazy encyclopedic knowledge, <laughs> yeah, which is really yeah, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're doing these two really beautiful exhibitions. And, you know, if anyone gets a chance to go and visit them, um, there's going to be more details that come out on, on, our, on our social media, but also on both of their social media, on Zovin and Inc. And we're trying to synchronize them so it's like a real synergy between us but there's some really beautiful pieces being exhibited and some you know some pieces that haven't been seen before um but we're also going to try and mm-hmm. document it all digitally so that people can see even if they can't visit um it's just a you know great yeah, way to end the year sure. but also this 15 years thing before we before we fully launch anatomy land next year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well it's a shame i won't be able to go there but uh, yeah i would love to see all the photos uh you know yeah let's also publish them on styles like guys yeah awesome man more people access to them yeah it would be great okay cool yeah well uh listen either i i'm really glad we talked this is gonna be a great episode and uh yeah keep in touch man i can't wait to see another man man. i can't wait, wait to see uh photos from the exhibits yeah man thank you so much thanks for your support all right man take care bye all right see you bye you've been listening to the styles i guys podcast hosted by eugene rapkin produced by patrick leduc intro and outro music by wesley isolt of cold cave Please support us on Patreon at www. 
patreon.com forward slash style zeitgeist. Thank you for listening.